My talk tonight is entitled, Why Go Back to Aristotle? How Studying Classical Philosophy Makes You Anti-Fragile. And I'm hoping there's at least one word in there that might be new to you. Uh, but I'm a good Aristotelian, and Aristotle says that you learn by starting with what's most familiar to you. And so I'm going to start with something that I hope is familiar to people at Great Hearts. You recognize that picture? Uh, there's, a, there's a version of it um, out in the hallway that you passed on the way in, right? Do I understand that there's a, uh, some version of this picture at every Great Hearts? Academy? Okay. I was going to use it anyway, but that's really providential that you guys use it. The one out in the hallway, by the way, is kind of small. Have you noticed that? Have any of you seen the real? Have any of you seen the real one? The real one is 25 feet by 17 feet. It's a huge, huge mural. Um, this is, this is uh, Raphael's most famous picture. It's called the School of Athens. Um, and we could spend, and probably great heart students, spend a lot of time identifying individual figures. There's Pythagoras and Heraclitus and a bunch of other Greek thinkers. But what most people know about this picture is who's right at the middle. Um, that's Plato and Aristotle. And this is maybe the most famous image of Plato and Aristotle. It might be the most famous image in all of philosophy. I've joked that there must be some rule from publishers that half of every philosophy book has to have this picture on the cover. Um, I love this picture. I think a lot of people make a mistake about this picture. Um, the most common mistake that people make is they say, oh yeah, look at Plato and Aristotle arguing with each other. Right? They're Maybe some of you have made that mistake. You don't have to admit it if you have. Right? Plato's pointing up, right? because he's got that crazy theory of the forms, I guess, and Aristotle's gesturing down because he argued with Plato about whether they're really that, that separate realm of the forms. They're not arguing with each other. These guys are friends. Aristotle is a student of Plato. There's nothing contradictory about pointing up and gesturing out, first of all. That's not a contradiction. Um, it's not in this image because I cropped it too tight, but they're walking in the same direction. They're moving, right? They're not... They're not Physically, they're not posed as in conflict. They're walking together, pacing in the same direction. And here's another reason that you know that they're not arguing. Raphael very carefully painted in the titles of the books that they're holding. So Plato there is holding a book called the Timaeus, which is about the origin of the universe. It's a cosmology or a metaphysics. So of course he's pointing up, because he's talking about where everything came from. right? Aristotle is holding the ethics, the Nicomachean ethics, which is about how we should live our lives, right? What should we be doing here and now? Is there a contradiction between where did everything come from and how should we live our lives? No. Would, would Aristotle agree that there's something up there that we should order our lives to? Of course. He says it in the Nicomachean ethics. Does Plato have anything to say about, uh, about how we should live our lives, about the practical world here and now? Yes, he absolutely does. Is it not coming through? There it goes. Sorry about that. That's all right. Thanks. Uh, Plato and Aristotle, in the history of philosophy, have usually been thought to share a lot more than they disagreed about. It's really kind of a modern invention to set them up as if they disagreed. Uh, 
Here's, here's a quotation. This is actually from a 19th century poem that was written to celebrate Plato's birthday uh, by a group of people that celebrated uh, the heritage of Plato. And it includes this, this uh, verse about Aristotle. Thy, Plato's words, became the source whence thought received its course in ages later and far less than thine. What Aristotle knew from thee, Plato, its substance drew, pure gold brought from thine inexhausted mine. That poem, uh, that verse, better captures the, the traditional understanding of the relationship between Plato and Aristotle, that, that Aristotle saw so much wisdom in Plato that, that he refined and, and he, he passed it on, but it wasn't like, a, it wasn't a fight. They weren't disagreeing. Um, and there's, there's the Great Hearts uh, alumni magazine or, or um, uh, parent magazine with, with Plato and Aristotle on the cover, right? Um, so my title, the title of my talk has the word anti-fragile in it. Anti-fragile is maybe my favorite new word. Um, and, and I'm going to spend a little time explaining it. The person who taught me this word is, is this guy, uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Um, if you've heard of him uh, before, he, he's, he's pretty well known, and he's written some best-selling books, the kind of books that um, end up uh, for sale in airports even, because everybody gets interested in them for a while. His most famous book is called The Black Swan. Um, and that, that had very good timing, because it came out around the time of the 2008 uh, market uh, crisis, and uh, some of what he talks about in the Black Swan has to do with um, unpredictable events in markets. And so people thought, oh, well, here's someone who's really good at predicting um, uh, what's going to happen. He's actually very adamant that he's, he's not good at predicting, and he's not trying to predict, and he's trying to figure out what it means to be wise in a world where prediction is not always possible, where you can't predict things. Um, so he, by now he has five books. He's actually working on a sixth book. Uh, the first book was called Fooled by Randomness, um, and then he wrote Black Swan. Uh, he wrote a book of aphorisms called The Bed of Procrustes. And he wrote a book called Anti-Fragile, and then his most recent book is called Skin in the Game. So he's, he's the one who taught me what anti-fragile means. So it, it, it's really easy to learn what the word means. Think about what fragility is. And then think about what would be the opposite of fragility. And, and when you first try to do this, you might get it wrong, right? Because you think something's fragile if it's harmed by being uh, uh, subject to stress, to su subject to some sort of surprise or shock or tension. Right? And so if something can survive that, right, um, then, it's, then it's not fragile, right? It's stronger, it's more robust. But what, what Taleb pointed out is that that's not exactly the opposite of fragile. Um, not being harmed is not exactly the opposite of being harmed, but the opposite of being harmed would be being helped, being, receiving some sort of benefit from stress. And now maybe you're first thinking, well, what kind of thing is like that? I mean, either, either you're going to withstand stress or you're not, but what kind of thing is, is helped by stress? Well, it's... It, it's not hard to imagine that some things, I mean, maybe, maybe a mythological thing like the hydra is helped by stress. You cut off one head and more heads grow out of the hydra, right? Um, it's not just that the hydra is strong or that it has thick skin and the head, head won't come off, but here's, here's something in, in mythology that if it's subject to some sort of uh, uh, trauma, 
Uh, it actually benefits from that. But it's not hard to think of more mundane, everyday examples. Uh, maybe you can't tell, but that's a picture of bone density. Right? What, what, what causes bones to lose their density? Well, um, not using them. Um, how, how, when, when astronauts have been off in space, they can, they can lose some of their bone density, or, or, or to keep their bone density, they might have to subject themselves to uh, stressors that are hard to, hard to engineer in, in the lack of gravity. But um, muscle tissue, uh, the ability to use a, a language. Uh, when, when we teach kids a foreign language and we try to use a, a method like immersion, okay, what are we doing? We're subjecting kids to Stress, and, and do kids like it? No, right? It's uncomfortable. That's the point. If, if you kept kids comfortable all the time, how much would they learn? Right? Um, learning a musical instrument as well. There, there are things that are supposed to be experienced as difficult in order for you to be able to learn how to do them and, and grow into them. So um, a, a, lot of, a lot of things in our life turn out to be uh, well described by this word that we, 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 we might have almost taken the concept for granted and didn't have a word for it. But, but once, you, once you start using this word, um, you, you realize that it's, it's very useful to describe. Um, why is it that, that muscles grow? Right? They don't grow from lack of use. They, they grow from a certain kind of stress. And then they, they respond by, you know, if, 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 you've, if you've exercised muscles to a certain degree, right, they respond by growing so that they're more prepared to handle that stress the next time. Right? It's almost the opposite of um, a, a post-traumatic stress disorder. It's like post-traumatic stress growth, which is, which is possible. Some people who are subject to, to great traumas actually come through stronger. Um, speaking of foreign languages, by the way, Taleb has a... Has a a funny line in one of his books that the easiest way to learn a foreign language is to get thrown in jail in a foreign country. <laughs> um, um, just to connect the idea of fragility and anti-fragility to um, his more famous idea of black swans um, and, and, and the possibility of, of uh, predicting what's going to happen in the future or at least being prepared for what you can't predict. You can think of the difference between fragility and anti-fragility in one sense as the difference between something that will um, do better when, when some surprise happens, when something that's unexpected, the so-called black swan. If, you, if all you've seen are white swans, then the black swan seems very shocking to you, right? Um, so something is anti-fragile if when the black swan comes, it actually benefits. And something is fragile if when the black swan comes, it's harmed, right? Um, so here's, here's a, a, a kind of summary of some of Taleb's key insights. We can't predict everything, but we can become more fit to survive the unpredictable. We can take steps to make ourselves better positioned for what we won't be able to predict. Um, and we know there will be black swans. We know there will be surpri surprises. We know we can't predict everything about the future. Um, and they can either hurt or destabilize us. Maybe they can have no effect if we're merely robust, or if we're lucky, uh, they can help. Um, Taleb applies this notion of fragility and anti-fragility to a large range of domains. And he, in, in, in his book, Anti-Fragile, he's got about four pages of um, several dozen examples. I've just selected a few here where you can think of the notion of fragility and anti-fragility in some different domains. So for instance, in the field of science and technology, 
Um, a directed research program is actually fragile in this sense, right? If, if, you, if you intend to um, invent a drug to cure this disease, right? And, and that's your goal, right? There's all kinds of ways you can fail. And, and if something happens that um, it, it doesn't work or your experiments fail, like you, you failed, right? Um, a more robust approach he calls opportunistic research, right? Instead of having one particular goal, you kind of survey, all right, what, what kinds of things are available? What, what, what am I uh, learning from my environment? And if something comes up, I'll redirect resources, right? I thought this was my goal, but now I realize this is where the real opportunity is. So then, then you can survive change. But an, an anti-fragile approach is something he calls stochastic. That's a fancy word for random. Um, actually just, plain old trial and error, like, fig, you know, just, hey, let's see what happens if we do this. Um, and, and historically, many of the most significant inventions um, in, in history have not been the result of a planned research program, of, of, of um, a strategy carried out towards a particular goal. It was a lot of serendipity, luck, responding to opportunity, and then realizing, oh, we've got something really big here, and, and, and we've got a lot of benefit from it. Um, I'll go, I'll go a little bit more quickly through some of these other examples, but just so we can practice using this concept. Right? Um, in general, these are generalizations, a, a large sort of established industry is, is actually more fragile than you'd think, right? Because if things don't go right for the way it's established, then um, it, 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 it doesn't have the nimbleness to change. If, if, if it loses its market, it doesn't, it, it, it's so dedicated to doing these things, it's expensive to re-engineer all the factories to crank out a different kind of widget. So a large established industry is, is a little bit fragile. Uh, small businesses tend to be more robust. They, they, can, they can respond to different opportunities. And he thinks that um, the, the, the most anti-fragile is the artisan, the person who can tailor um, uh, uh, very, very well done work to specific tasks as they come and then uh, maybe have the opportunity to have a great commission like uh, painting a mural uh, in, in, in Rome for, for the Pope. Um, social systems are usually supported by some sort of worldview, right? Um, if they're supported by an ideology, Taleb says they're, they're pretty fragile because ideologies don't really stand up to contradiction all that well. They, they can still be very stridently and shrilly um, put forward, but once people start to doubt the ideology, the ideology doesn't have a lot of resources to defend itself. On the other hand, um, a, a social system that's supported by a mythology, by a story, by a narrative that people find their place in, the, the narrative has a way of adapting and including and, and changing and, and developing. Um, and so a, a mythology is actually a, a more anti-fragile uh, way of, of conveying the worldview that supports a social system. Um, in politics, and this is what his next book is going to be about, the large centralized nation state is actually very fragile. Uh, compared to collections of, of smaller city-states, uh, a kind of uh, localism or decentralization where, where political authority is widely distributed and, and people with different needs in different places can respond more nimbly to, uh, to changes in their environment. Um, I'm not going to go through all the rest of these, but I hope that's enough to give you a sense of how he applies this concept, which, which starts out uh, as a sort of simple reflection on the notion of fragility and what its opposite would be to, to many different domains. One of the things that Taleb notes is that 
you can think of, of in the difference between fragile things and anti-fragile things as the difference between mechanical things and organic things, right? So think of a, think of a mechanical thing. It, it's specifically set up and organized in a particular way, right? It has a plan imposed on it. Um, its parts are only as complicated as they absolutely need to be to, to do their function. So on my little mechanical rabbit there, I guess there's gears with, but, but, but there's no more, there's no, there's no more um, fine-grained detail on that than there absolutely needs to be for the gears to fit and, and, and move, right? Um, even if you could wind up the mechanical rabbit, right? Um, it's, it's getting whatever energy it has from the outside. The thing itself is static. It doesn't have an internal dynamism. Um, it's also knowable or comprehensible, right? The, the person who engineered it has, has the whole plans um, you know, uh, in, in his head and can understand it. Uh, mechanical things, as we know, over time, wear out. Uh, there, there's, there's always, I mean, this is, this is something that engineers study, is like how much tolerance does this thing have to this much wear and how long, how long can we expect it to last through, through multiple iteration, iterations. And it needs, it needs a kind of stability or consistency. If you take it out of the environment that it was designed to function in, it's just not going to work. By contrast, an organism has all the opposite qualities. Right? Its order isn't imposed by some, by some engineer from the outside. It's, it's, a, it's an in, intrinsic order. Um, it, it's not simplistic and, and smooth. It's complex. And this is another favorite word of Nassim Taleb's. It's fractal. That is to say, it's, its order and organization um, uh, re reflects um, different, different scale and detail, the way branches off of a tree branch into smaller branches and into smaller branches. It's dynamic. It has an inner, inner principle of, of life. It's not knowable, right? No matter how much you know about rabbits, there's something about the, the, the nature of a rabbit and what it is to be a living organism that just sort of escapes our ability to, to totally define it. And of course, this is, this is the point about it's being anti-fragile, stress causes growth, right? The rabbit will go, grow stronger as it exercises its muscles. Uh, it will become better at hunting for food if it finds itself um, hungry for a while. Um, and it can adapt to new situations, right? Maybe the rabbit is happy and comfortable in a simple cage, but we all know that animals actually look more vital and act more, um, more happy when they're in their natural environment, which is full of um, you know, changes in temperature and changes in terrain. And, um, that, that, that's, that's the condition under which an organism thrives, is when things are unpredictable. Um, so, so a machine is something that you, you can use it, but eventually you'll lose it, right? It falls apart. It will wear out. An organism is something that you have to use it or lose it. Um, it, 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 it will not be what it is meant to be unless it is put under conditions of stress. Um, for me, the most interesting application of the notion of fragility is to, to social systems, political and economic systems. Um, here's a couple of examples. Um, in agriculture, dependence on large-scale industrial farming, monoculture, genetically engineered crops, centralized distribution networks, those are all um, amazing advances in agriculture but they've actually made the agricultural system very fragile. If something goes wrong, if the, if the genetically engineered crop fails, 
if, if the, uh, the centralized distribution of food fails, a lot of people are affected and it's very hard to rebuild. Um, in finance, dependence on large banks, on debt, on government regulation, uh, means that all those experts who are controlling and planning the financial system better get it right. Um, and and if, if they don't, right, things can go very, very wrong. Whereas a, a, a financial system where we're not all depending on one bank that's too big to fail, but we have, we have local institutions and hierarchies of institutions that are supporting each other, um, there might still be failure, but it can be localized and, and supported and, and doesn't cause as much uh, damage. In politics, dependence on centralized government, on bureaucratic expertise, on over-regulation, uh, we, we have the technology to centralize, and we sometimes think that means that we are better off if we centralize. But this is Taleb's point. When we, when we centralize too much, we actually sometimes make ourselves worth, worse off. Uh, we, we fragilize the system. Um, in all of these areas, a more anti-fragile system would be more organic, would be more decentralized and fractal with more local responsibility and flexibility. Here's another image of the difference between um, an, an anti-fragile system and a, and a, and a, and a, um, a more fragile system. Um, on, on the uh, left here is a picture of an architecture built on the modern industrial scale. Um, and on the right is a street corner in an old European city, right? Uh, the, the level of detail, the level of complexity, the level of sort of interest and unpredictability on the right. Um, by the way, where do you want to spend time, right? There's something aesthetic about this as well. Um, the, the, the human being is drawn to things that are more natural and more organic. Um, if there are any people who appreciate the brutal architecture on the left in the room, I apologize. but. Um, and, and, and this is meant to be a kind of image that, that could translate to other areas, not just urban design. Right? You can have things that have a, a mechanical, centralized, standardized, top-down structure uh, where there's no local responsibility, no local participation. And it's all produced by bureaucrats applying some sort of theory, even, even that architecture, right? Who's responsible for that architecture? Maybe two or three people, right? There's an architecture, uh, there's an architect, and then there was someone with enough power to force through, we're gonna build this on this plot of land. Um, and it's, it's slow to adapt. Whatever that building was built for, if it, if it, if it uh, has to be adapted to sort some other use, it, it, it might actually be pretty difficult to do that. On the other hand, in the classical or more natural model, things are organic, they're decentralized. How many people did it take to build that street? Uncountable, probably. Right? And it developed over, over a long, long time. There was a natural evolution of that street. Right? It, was, it, was, it was an organic interaction, a whole ecology of people working together to build that street. It's decentralized, it's diversified, it's bottom, bottom up. There's local responsibility. Um, instead of bureaucrats applying theory, it's actual practitioners on the ground working together and applying their experience. And of course, it's more adaptive. It can, be, it can, it can survive through lots of different circumstances. That city street's probably been there for hundreds of years, seen all kinds of different shapes of, of human society, but accommodated them all. Um, before I get to that slide, uh, let's think about an education system. Right? Do you want an education system that's all smooth, centralized, standardized, um, where um, the design and control is coming from the top down, right? so that everything is, everything is delivered in a uniform way? 
Or do you want an education system that is decentralized, where there's local participation, where there um, is, is uh, feedback from uh, different parties to adapt to new situations, uh, where there's diversity and, and a kind of hierarchy of structure and authority. Uh, well, the first kind is, is at least, it might be more efficient at doing certain things, but it's also gonna be more fragile. Um, the, other, the other kind, which actually America has a great education system and what most people miss about the American education system is that it's not a system, it's an ecosystem. There's all kinds of different ways in which, which people are raising kids and trying to work together. There is a public education system which is trying to control as much of that as possible, but one of the things that uh, homeschooling, classical schooling, and of course the charter school um, movement shows is that that's fragile and it doesn't respond well to threats and stress, but it's also showing that what, what parents on the ground want and what actual teachers who, who um, want to participate in the education of children want is a little bit more local responsibility, a little bit more ability to adapt and participate um, and, um, uh, uh, and, and that's gonna be a stronger system. It's gonna be able to survive different kinds of surprises and, and, uh, and stresses. Um, so not only is the education system something that you could think of as a whole that's either fragile or anti-fragile, but um, what you're doing when you educate a child can be understood in terms of whether you're trying to make that child uh, more fragile or more anti-fragile. Um, I, I think that we could distinguish an anti-fragilizing education, which we should all want, from a fragilizing education. Right? What, would a, what would an education do if it made you more fragile? If, if after a child comes out of this kind of education, it's more vulnerable, more likely to fail? Well, that kind of education would harden the mind into some sort of unreflective commitment. The mind would be weaker and less capable of surviving intellectual shocks. Ideas that challenge or confuse or criticize that student would be hurtful, they would be traumatizing. Student would not, would not withstand those kinds of things. Right? That's actually not education, is it? Right? That, that's, that's a kind of social conditioning or indoctrination. Um, that's, that's brainwashing into ideology, that's not education. Right? But when you realize that, right, then you can say, okay, well, what would authentic education look like? Well, it wouldn't, it wouldn't harden and weaken the mind it would strengthen the mind into a lively activity. It would make the mind more flexible, more capable of surviving intellectual shocks. Uh, ideas that challenge and confuse or criticize such a student would be exciting and invigorating, not threatening. Right? That would be a true education. Right? It would make the student stronger, more capable of adapting, um, more uh, comfortable and, and happy in the unpredictable intellectual environment that is the real world. That is not indoctrinating someone into an ideology, that's forming someone in intellectual virtue. That's making someone a, a, a flourishing, uh, rational animal. Um, one of the things that I admire so much about great arts is its commitment to classical education, and I think that's the key to uh, great heart's ability to help make students anti-fragile. Um, Edith Hall has a recent book about um, the ancient Greeks. Um, 
And at the beginning of that book, she identifies 10 characteristics of ancient Greeks. Uh, they were seafaring, which is to say adventurous, uh, suspicious of authority, individualistic, inquiring, open to new ideas, witty, competitive, they admired excellence, they were wildly articulate, they were addicted to pleasure. Um, she's not saying that all of these were in and of themselves pure excellences. They were, they were features of the Greek culture, features of the Greek mind, and so much of what we attribute to um, the, the, um, the goods that came out of, of Greek culture that we still study come from um, the, the interaction of these different features and the ways in which um, different figures would try to refine them and bring the best out of them, right? So obviously, ad addiction to pleasure can lead uh, to all sorts of terrible things, but it can also uh, cause some deep reflection on what would it really mean for a human being to be satisfied. And Plato's Republic, which criticizes addiction to pleasure, also describes the good life as the most pleasurable. Um, that's, that's just one example where um, the inquiring open to new ideas and, and admiration of excellence uh, can refine um, another, another quality of the Greek mind that, that Edith Hall identified. Um, I'm not going to talk about all Greek thinkers. I think there's something really, really special about Aristotle that makes him um, distinctively worth studying. And I also expect that students are most likely to complain about studying Aristotle. Um, do we have any students in the room who have been reading some Aristotle? He's hard, isn't he? Um, so so here's, here's where I answer the question of my title. Right? Why does studying Aristotle make you anti-fragile? One reason that studying Aristotle makes you anti-fragile is that his ideas are so lasting. He died in 322 BC, so we've been, we've been thinking and talking about Aristotle for 2,300 years. Uh, that's a long time. Uh, things that last tend to last. And if you want to last, if you want to be sort of in touch with things that are important, that have a kind of permanence and a, a, a kind of um, staying power, then you should make yourself um, in tune with and in touch with things that last, right? Um, you could read whatever's in the latest tabloid magazine, but how much is that worth? Does it, it, we know it doesn't matter. We know that it's, it's a vanity that comes and flashes and fades, right? So if you want to spend your time, your attention on something valuable, find something that's been around for a very, very long time, and Aristotle's been around for a long time. Here's another reason Aristotle makes you anti-fragile. His texts are hard, right? Uh, maybe not as hard as learning a foreign language in a foreign prison, but um, they're difficult. They challenge you. That's okay. I tell this to students all of the time. If, if you're comfortable in my class, I'm doing something wrong. I want to get you to the point where you're uncomfortable, and then I want you to do what you need to do to, to deal with that. And Aristotle's texts are very, very difficult. There are a lot of people who would say high schoolers shouldn't read Aristotle's texts. Um, and... Um, you know, you're not going to, even, even the best and brightest great heart students are not going to get everything there is to get out of Aristotle reading his text. But if you try, if you try, you will get something and you will have strengthened your mind by working on something very, very difficult. Here's a third reason that Aristotle makes you anti-fragile. 
I just said he's very difficult, but he's also incredibly clear. Sounds like a contradiction, right? The texts are hard to read, but the ideas that his texts contain, once you reach them, once you, once you grasp them, they are so clear. This is why they've been so lasting. They, 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 they are ideas that once people see them, they have a hard time unseeing them. Um, his, his ability to describe things, to categorize, to classify, to put things in order um, is, is amazing. And for students to, to be exposed to ideas with that much clarity helps to strengthen them so that they can practice seeking to have that much clarity in, in their own exercises even when they're not reading Aristotle. Here's a fourth reason that Aristotle makes you anti-fragile. The dialectical method. Uh, maybe you associate the dialectical method more with Plato. Plato wrote dialogues, and he had Socrates and other characters talking to each other and going back and forth. You can almost read more like a play. And we think of Aristotle maybe as more uh, like writing a treatise or an essay. But Aristotle learned enough from Plato to know that even in writing a treatise, he should integrate and encode a dialectical method. By dialectical, I mean you ask questions and you answer them. You raise problems and then you try to solve them. Every single work of Aristotle, he, he doesn't say, here's what I think, believe me. Right? He says, here's some stuff that we mostly think, right? But here's some problems with that. And here's what someone else said, and that seems kind of interesting, but here's a problem with that. But maybe we could take something that he said over here and refine it and use it to solve this problem we had over here. And so he's arguing out loud with his predecessors, with common sense, with himself, with things he said previously. Um, and, and for Aristotle to do that in writing and show students what it's like to think out loud, I think is a very, very um, uh, powerful thing for students to be exposed to. Just, by the way, as writer, one of the things I think um, I find college students often still have a problem writing an essay because they think that to write an essay, you first have to figure out everything you're going to say, and then you just transcribe it. But writing doesn't work that way, right? Um, if, if, if you've written an essay and, and you have any sort of sense of, of pride or ownership of that essay, you know that you didn't know what you thought until you finished writing the essay, that the writing of the essay helped you you know, you, by putting it into words, you realized, okay, that's, that's what I thought I was going to say, but now I realize that I'm going to have to refine it over here, or now I remember someone's, I can imagine someone, my friend, objecting to it over here, so I'll have to integrate this. And, and so thinking, writing, is all dialectical, and Aristotle is a fantastic model for uh, dialectical reasoning. A fifth reason that studying Aristotle makes you anti-fragile, his integrative vision. So I said before, his ideas were clear. But it's not just that they're clear, it's that they are so comprehensive that he really is trying to encompass everything. He's trying to find a place for everything in a whole order. Um, he has books about all kinds of strange things. He has books about dreaming, and he has books about um, uh, you know, fish and squid and um, uh, memory and uh, metaphysics and the soul, but they're, they're all trying to find how reality fits together and how we can unite knowledge. 
Uh, this is another really important thing, I think, for students to get in the habit of early, especially at the high school level, because the problem with um, uh, the school structure where you go from one class to another is that students start to think that knowledge is running on these parallel tracks. When I'm in this room, I have to think this way and satisfy whatever whims of this teacher are. And when I'm in this room, I have to think this way and satisfy the whims of this teacher. And there's no connection between the two. But Aristotle's comprehensive vision tries to show how everything ultimately has to be integrated. And if you're, if you're learning in one area, there must be ways in which what you're learning connects to something else in some other area. Political philosophy should connect to psychology, which should connect to biology, which should connect to history. Um, Aristotle, more than any other philosopher, helps us to see the possibility of an integrative vision. A sixth reason that Aristotle, studying Aristotle makes you anti-fragile, it's not all academic. It's not all about book learning. It's not all about being an intellectual and um, solving uh, interesting puzzles. Uh, this is about how we're going to live our lives. This is about what we're going to die for. Um, I said before in that picture of, of Plato pointing up and Aristotle pointing out, right? They're talking about how our lives are ordered towards some destiny. Um, it, it really helps students, I think, in high school to have a glimpse of how what they're doing in a classroom with a teacher might matter for their, for their future happiness and their, and their immortal destiny. Um, and, you know, Aristotle, again, um, is, is uh, second to none in reminding his readers that there is an ultimate goal about, about the soul in his works. The last reason I say that studying Aristotle makes you anti-fragile is that um, he, he is a living tradition. Not just that he's lasted for a long, long time, but that the, the, the community of people who think and live and breathe with Aristotle's ideas is ongoing. And, and um, for a student to be introduced to Aristotle, therefore, is for a student to join the, uh, the most anti-fragile living tradition of ideas that there is. Um, it, Maybe we could say there are multiple traditions, because it's not as if everybody who's been influenced by Aristotle agrees about every particular thing. So if you wanted to get fine-grained, you could talk about different versions of Aristotle and different, different communities that have been inspired by Aristotle. Uh, Greek Orthodox Christians have been influenced by Aristotle in ways that overlap but are slightly different from the way Roman Catholic Christians have been influenced by Aristotle, which is different from the way that Muslim thinkers have been influenced by Aristotle. But there's no doubt that, that this is alive, that people are still um, uh, engaged in ongoing, socially uh, significant activity that's informed by Aristotle's ideas. So with those um, seven reasons why studying Aristotle makes you anti-fragile, I want to return to this picture. And my hope is that I can make you look at this picture uh, differently. I've already hopefully made, made you look at it differently, but how many, how many of you have seen this picture in its original context? Um, can you describe where it is? In the back with the, the tan jacket? Do you remember where you saw it? 
Yeah, it's in the Vatican. It's in Rome. Um, it, it's a, it's a, a, a fresco on a wall in a room. Um, when, when Raphael was painting the School of Athens, a little bit down the hall, uh, his friend Michelangelo was painting the Sistine Chapel, uh, the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. That's a terrible picture of the Sistine Chapel, but it's labeled to help you see this one important element. The, the, the Sistine Chapel is full, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel is full of images of um, uh, biblical Old Testament events. The most famous, of course, is, is the, the creation of, of man with God touching Adam's finger. Um, but you've got lots of other things up there from the Old Testament, Isaiah and Ezekiel and, and creation and Noah. Um, Michelangelo was painting the ceiling with Old Testament images that prefigured Christ, who was going to be on, on the wall of the altar, right, where there's the last judgment. Right? I believe that Raphael might have had in mind this uh, observation from Clement of Alexandria. Clement of Alexandria said that as the law was a preparation for the Jews, philosophy was a preparation for the Greeks. A preparation for what? Well, a preparation for the fulfillment of Christ. So when Raphael painted the School of Athens, it was part of a design of a whole room. And when I first went to Rome and I saw this, I was mad that nobody had ever told me this. I'd, all, I'd, I'd just seen that fresco, but I didn't see it in the context where it existed. So if you turn to the, the left of the School of Athens, and there's, a, there's an image of this outside, actually. I saw it on my way in. Um, there's, a, there's a painting of um, poets. It includes Virgil, it includes Homer, it includes Dante. Um, and on the other side of the School of Athens, to its right, there is a painting of uh, famous lawgivers and the theological virtues. Above them, on the ceiling, and you can't make it out from this, are four muses. But the four muses are the, the muses of philosophical wisdom, of poetry, of, um, of law and virtue, and then of the divine science. So across the room from the School of Athens is this painting. Um, there's so much detail in there that you can't all make it out. But what you have up above is a group of saints all sitting around um, with Christ seated, an image of God the Father above him, the, the dove of the Holy Spirit descending. And then right in the middle, where all the perspective lines converge, right? In the School of Athens, all the perspective lines converge right at Plato and Aristotle. And on this image, all the perspective lines converge on the Eucharist. Now, in Christian theology, right, Jesus Christ was God who became man. And the Eucharist is the, the physical bodily presence of Christ. Right? So what was Raphael saying? By the way, notice there's a, there's a figure here pointing up, 
and a figure here gesturing out towards the Eucharist. Um, right, you don't have to be a Christian to appreciate this point. In the history of ideas, the, the very notion of the incarnation was a huge black swan. It came out of nowhere. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. It's crazy. God becomes man. Like, what, what, how could you absorb that into any kind of philosophical system? Well, one of the remarkable things about the Aristotelian philosophical system is that it absorbed that idea. It said, oh, I can make something of that. Right? Even if Plato and Aristotle didn't know it, they're on the other side of the room talking about ultimate things in the here and now and walking straight towards what they don't know, they couldn't have seen, right? Because it hadn't happened yet and they never would have been able to predict it. But Raphael has them walking right towards the Eucharist. And this painting, by the way, it's called the Disputation. And here's another thing that bugs me when people describe this room of Raphael. They say, oh, well, it's all about learning. And um, so it's the Disputation because theologians like to argue about stuff. Well, it's a Disputation in the classical medieval sense where you engage in a dialectical back and forth with people to learn and understand something. Right? And what they're disputing and the means that they're disputing is making sense in as best as human beings can in rational terms of something that cannot possibly be, uh, be rationally comprehended. It's a mystery that will be inexhaustibly pondered but never sort of eliminated or, um, or done away with. But, but so for Raphael, the, the image of the fulfillment of the Aristotelian Platonic vision of philosophy seeking ultimate truth is encaptured in this image of um, the saints who are continuing the Aristotelian disputation of making sense of a mystery. Um, I'm going to leave you then with this uh, from Aristotle. And I don't do PowerPoints, but, and I know that one of the cardinal rules of PowerPoints is not to put a lot of text on a slide and not to read it. But I'm enough of an Aristotelian to want to leave you with a good long quote from Aristotle. This is from near the beginning of the metaphysics. The investigation of the truth is in one way hard, in another easy. No one is able to attain the truth adequately alone while on the other hand, we do not collectively fail, but everyone says something true about the nature of things. So first, a humility that none of us is all going to figure it out. But working together, we can get farther. Another reason it's hard, though. Perhaps, too, as difficulties are of two kinds, the cause of the present difficulty is not the fact, in the facts, but in us. For as the eyes of the bats are to the blaze of day, so is the reason in our soul to the things which are by nature most evident of all. Right? Um, some of you would be more familiar with this image from Plato's uh, allegory of the cave, right? But maybe the ultimate truth is so blindingly bright that we can't ever expect to see. But we can still try and we can still, you know, maybe shielding our eyes, try to get as close as we can. It is right that we should be grateful not only to those with whose views we may agree, but also to those who have expressed more inadequate views. For these also contributed something, right? Even people we disagree with, even people whose ideas we thought were stupid, thinking about what made them stupid actually helped us figure stuff out, right? For these also contributed something by developing before us the powers of thought. 
So that's why I, I'm, I'm so happy that Great Hearts makes students read Aristotle, and, um, and I hope you never stop making students read Aristotle, uh, because it will make your students anti-fragile. Thank you.